Hard to believe we're in chapter 14. But in chapter 14, we come to an entirely different scene. If you remember, in chapter 13, we had a description of the beast, who is the false messiah, and his counterfeit Elijah, who was to come and prepare the way for the beast. Remember, everything that God does, the adversary does the opposite, or he copies and then perverts. And we also had a vision of the dragon and the beast and the havoc that they brought about in the world. And in the next chapter, their scene is going to change dramatically as we're going to see from the very first verse. In the next chapter, we get the tale of two cities. We get the culmination of the battle between good and evil, between light and darkness. And so in verse 1 of chapter 14, it says this. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And so we have the Lamb, and he's standing on Mount Zion, and with him those who had the father's name on their foreheads, and his name on their foreheads. And we spoke about just what that meant in an earlier lesson. We determined that they are those whose lives are lives of prayer. The symbol that they had on their forehead is the sheen. It's a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's the same symbol that's on the phylacteries of our Jewish people when they pray. They bind them on their foreheads and on their hands. And it's symbolic again of the name of God. And with Yeshua is an army of those who have not defiled themselves with the world. And that's why the lamb is with them. And so understand, they are ready for war, but it is a spiritual war. It's not the kind of war we think of. And so in contrast, the beast, here with the lamb, we see the lamb because the lamb of God paid the price for all of those standing with him. The lamb is standing on Mount Zion. And remember, two weeks ago, we looked at the woman who is Israel of chapter 12, who was taken into the wilderness to a place prepared for her to keep her from the dragon. And now the lamb and 144,000 are not hiding anymore. We have 144,000 standing on Mount Zion with the lamb, not running, but they're preparing for the wrath of God and the wrath of the lamb that's going to be poured out. And something else, they're standing on Mount Zion, the dwelling place of Adonai. And we see that in the word. In Psalm 74, verse 2, it says, Remember your congregation, which you purchased, of old redeemed as the tribe of your inheritance and Mount Zion where you dwelt. And so this is where God dwelt and he's with Israel long ago and where he will dwell as well. Zechariah 8.3 says, Thus says Adonai, I will return to Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of Adonai, Sevaot, will be called the holy mountain. And so it would appear that the reign of God is coming back into the earth. The lamb and the 144,000 are standing on the mountain of God, the holy city. And then in verse 2 of chapter 14 we read, And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters, like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And so we have some promises being fulfilled here. Isaiah 126 says, Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant with righteousness. And it also speaks of this in Isaiah 62, 11. Behold, Adonai has proclaimed 
to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. See, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And there are many other verses we could allude to that where God promises to return and to restore Zion. And this is the army with the lamb. And again, it's because the lamb has redeemed them from the world. Next, we're going to get a description of the army in verses 4 and 5. It tells us about those who are standing on the mountain. It says, these are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. And no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. And so these are the 144,000 that we read of in chapter 7. And we saw that they are actually the first fruits. And so they're representative of the fullness of Israel. And more than likely, where it says in verse 2, I heard a sound from heaven like roar of rushing waters. It speaks of the multitudes in heaven who have been crying out to God for vindication. And the vindication has arrived. Not just that, but the lamb and the 144,000 are going to harvest those who have been faithful to God. And that is the other reason we see here the lamb instead of one of the other titles for Messiah because the lamb has paid the price for all of those who are going to be redeemed. And they're singing a new song, much the same as Israel sang as God was victorious over Egypt and brought them up out of Egypt. But this one no one can learn because it's the song of Moses and the song of the lamb. And they, they can't learn it because only the redeemed of the earth can understand the fullness of what Messiah has accomplished for them and for the earth. And where it says they did not defile themselves with women. That isn't to say they were without wives or that they were single all their lives, but that they were faithful in their marriage. If you search the scriptures, you're going to find nowhere in the Bible does it tell us not to marry. Quite the contrary. The first positive commands of scripture are to rule the earth and to be fruitful and multiply. You know, we see this in the church where priests didn't marry. Where did the church get the idea of celibacy for priests? Well, I'm going to read from an Irish biblical scholar, R.H. Charles, and he writes this. The superiority of the celibate life, though un-Jewish and un-Christian, was early adopted from the Gnostics and the other Christian heretics, such as Marcion, and the religions of Isis, Mithra, and the Vestal Virgins. So again, this is not what is brought forth in Scripture. Man is to be fruitful and multiply. This defilement with women may also refer to not worshiping the beast because that's often referred to as adultery in scriptures. Hence, it also says they followed the lamb wherever he went. And so where did the church get the idea that priests should remain unfaithful? Well, it was Marcion was one of them. Remember Marcion. We spoke about how it was Marcion who started the teaching that we don't need the Torah. We don't need the prophets. But all we really need to pay attention to is the writings of Paul. And we spoke of how the early church proclaimed him to be a heretic. But that teaching still infiltrated into the church. Well, that wasn't the only thing that infiltrated into the church. This is another example of how Marcion's teachings entered into the faith. The church even adopted celibacy for priests. And you only need to look at the scandals of the last few years to see the fruit of ignoring the word of God in this regard. So he speaks of the god Mithra. And Mithra was a Roman god who was born on December 25th. 
And that's where we get our Christmas celebration. But the Vestal versions, I won't give commentary on. But as you can see, these are all things that were adopted from paganism by Catholicism. So much for that. But the 144,000, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. In other words, they're Torah-observant Jews. They follow Messiah's footsteps. He was a Torah-observant Jew. And the other thing to understand is they follow according to Messiah's footsteps. They're not following in the traditions of the day. And that's why they're wearing the name of God on their foreheads. They are Yeshua's disciples, not disciples of the teachings of the church, not the disciples of the teachings of the rabbis, but they walk in the footsteps of Messiah. They are his disciples. Yeshua said to his disciples, come follow me, and these are those who follow Yeshua. And then finally it says they're blameless. In other words, they are written in the book of life, and they have accepted the lamb he's with them and that's the only way to be blameless and to be put in the book of life so verse 6 says i saw another angel flying in midair and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth to every nation tribe language and people he said in a loud voice fear god give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. And so again, this speaks of the reign of God coming into the earth, and it says, worship him who made the heavens. Worship in the scriptures is to give your life over to him, to obey him, to fall on your face before him, is actually what the word for worship means in the scriptures. And so this is the first of two cities, and they're standing on Mount Zion, the city of God, and they're standing 144,000 with the Lamb. Now, in contrast to that, as we read of the dragon and the beast, it will speak of another city. And what will be the other city? It will speak of Babylon. It speaks of a victory over Babylon in the next few verses, but it will not give many of the details of that victory until we get to chapters 17 and 18. And what we are seeing here again is the contrast between two cities. And what are cities usually? If I say, if you refer to Jerusalem, it not only speaks of the city, but it speaks of the inhabitants of the city. That's why Yeshua said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you. Okay, so we're speaking of two cities here, Zion and the city of God and its inhabitants and the city of the world, Babylon and its inhabitants. And so in verse 8, it says, The second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. And so we have the first mention of Babylon here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, this week anyway, because it's going to be the major topic as we look at chapters 17 and 18. But we should note that Messiah stands on Mount Zion, and the reign of God is returning into the earth. So because of his return, Babylon has fallen. And we speak of the fall of Babylon, but it doesn't just say Babylon has fallen, but it says fallen and fallen is Babylon the great, making it emphatic. Why are the wicked called Babylon? Why would John call the wicked Babylon? Well, it was the first to conquer Judah and to destroy the first temple. And again, it was pagan nation. And I'm going to show you two pictures of the gates of Babylon. It's called the Ishtar Gate. And if that sounds a lot like Easter, there's a reason for that. Ishtar was the goddess of Babylon, one of the goddesses of Babylon, but it was also part of one of the goddesses in the Pantheon in Rome. So here's a picture of the Ishtar Gate. And this first one is in Germany. 
which is the original gate. It was taken to Germany and reconstructed in the 1930s. Remember how we spoke? I think it was in lesson two or three, how the temple of Zeus was restored in Germany in the 1930s as well. And then what do we have happen in Germany shortly after? We have the Holocaust. The second we're going to look at, this is a reconstruction in Iraq. And that's where Babylon actually was. It was in Iraq. The other thing we should understand about Babylon is that for the first century followers of Messiah and the Jewish people who were not followers of Messiah, Babylon was actually a code name for Rome. They could speak of Babylon in negative ways and not be in fear of retribution from Rome. And so it also spoke of Rome. If you said Babylon, you could be talking about Rome. But the fact is, Roman, as I said, and Babylon both destroyed a temple. Babylon, the first, and Rome, of course, destroyed the second. And when it speaks of Rome, we should understand that Rome is also a name for the world order. At that time of the writing of this book, it was the world power. It's also the essence of the world powers today. You see, Rome is actually alive and well in today's world. We see it in our country. Just as Rome was tolerant of many gods, we're starting to see that in our country. Rome was not tolerant of the early followers of Yeshua because they preached the truth of one God and Yeshua the Messiah. And that is also becoming all too true in our country today. It's the very nature of this country. We're now finding that the government actually has little time for the church anymore because the church stands and synagogues stand for what they actually are in favor of. And it's going to get worse. They also control the schools who are teaching our children, the children in the nation, things that they ought not to learn at such a young age. And now it's going to speak of the judgment of those who have ignored the commands of God and followed the beast in the next section. This is the other city, Babylon. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on their forehead or on their hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb and smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image. And for anyone who receives the mark of his name, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey the commands of God and remain faithful to Yeshua. And so this is a really difficult passage for some, for those who love God and who are in Messiah. And it's difficult because they may have family members and friends who are still in the world and haven't accepted Yeshua as Lord of their life. And some of them who have died and they're concerned about where they ended up without turning to the lamb. And the thought of this punishment so severe troubles them. The thought of tormented with burning sulfur and their torment rises forever and ever. It's not something we want to think about. You know, I had a gal years ago who came and she came to me and talked to me and she just couldn't accept that this would happen to her unsaved loved ones. But she thought that people who weren't saved would just die and be no more. But that's not according to scriptures. And the other thing I've always heard, you may have heard too, spoken of the God of Israel who formed and made man. You've probably heard somebody say, if this is how your God treats the people of the earth, I want no part of your God. How many have heard things like that? Well, you have to understand, it's not God who determined what's going to happen to the people of the earth. 
It's the people of the earth who made the choice not to follow God. Remember, we just read of an angel who proclaimed the eternal gospel worldwide. God is going to remove these people because he's holy and he can't dwell on the earth with those who are not. And so they're removed. But it's not God's choice. It's always been their choice. And we're going to see that as we move on a little farther. And it says of those who have not received the mark of the beast that they obey the commands of God. And what does that mean? It means the same thing. They remained faithful to Messiah and that means they obeyed the commands of God. Yeshua says, if you love me, obey my command. So they remained faithful to Messiah and obeyed the commands of God. And if you think back to the early chapters, chapter 2 and chapter 3, where they talked about the churches, they were praised for their obedience to God's commands and they were rebuked for disobedience to God's command. You know, I really don't understand how believers can read this book and not immediately become studiers of God's Torah, his law. But for the most part, they don't. And that should tell you something about how strong the deception in the world is today. Chapter 13, verse 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. They will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, with a crown on his head of gold and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out from the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And so he who was seated on the cloud swung the sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. And so who do we have seated on the cloud? The son of man. And he's come to reap the earth, to judge the earth. And he comes on the clouds of heaven. And so we're told the son of man is coming on the clouds of heaven. But what are the clouds of heaven? Did you ever think about that? What are the clouds of heaven? Well, Jude tells us in the only chapter, verses 14 and 15, he says, Behold, the Lord came with myriads of his kedoshim, myriads of his holy ones, to execute judgment against all. He will convict the ungodly for all their ungodly deeds that they have done in an ungodly way and for all the harsh things ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And so what are the clouds of heaven? They're the righteous. They're coming back with Yeshua. They're coming back with the Son of Man. And so the clouds of heaven are the righteous and the Son of Man is returning with the righteous to judge the earth. And so here, Yeshua is about to harvest the earth, and this is the harvest of the righteous. We're going to see the harvest of the wicked in a minute, but this is the harvest of the righteous, and we see the Son of Man. Remember what we talked about in the early weeks when you hear this term, Son of Man? He's the judge. He's the one who's going to judge the earth. He judged the churches in chapters 2 and 3, and here he is again, harvesting the righteous from the earth. And remember, this is happening first because what? Judgment begins where? In the house of God. Okay, now we have a different harvest in verse 17. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, 
because the grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered the grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. And they were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and the blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. So in contrast to the harvest above, this speaks of the harvest of the worshipers of the beast, the wicked. And this is talking about the harvest and the final judgment of the wicked. And what we're seeing in these chapters is this tale of two cities again. Jerusalem and Zion versus Babylon. Now, the cities often represents the people again. So remember, we're looking at the final judgment between the people of God and Yeshua versus those of the world order and the beast. And the outcome of this conflict has never been in doubt. We're going to find the same punishment spoken of in the prophets. So we're going to go to Joel chapter 3. We're going to read the same thing. Proclaim among the nations, prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weakling say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations from every side, and assemble here. Bring down your warriors, O Lord, and let the nations be roused. Let them advance to the valley of Jehoshaphat, where I will sit and judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Trample the grapes, for the wine press is full, and the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. And so you see, this is speaking of the same event. It's a prophecy of the book of Joel. Joel speaks much of the end of days. And it's the same as events. The Son of Man is judging the earth. Isaiah speaks of it in chapter 63. We'll read that quickly as well. Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garment stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in greatness of strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden down the winepress alone. From the nations no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered on my garments. I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. The year of my redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my arm worked salvation for me. And my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. And in my wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. Okay, so again, harsh words, but it speaks of the same judgment. And notice that it says... My arm worked salvation for me. Who's the arm of the Lord? Yeshua is the arm of the Lord. So let's go to chapter 15. We're going to go through this chapter quickly. But again, we're looking at the last three and a half years of the birth pangs of Messiah. And we know because it talks about the last of the plagues, the bowls that are going to be poured out. We just saw it said, fallen, fallen is Babylon. Well, the next chapters, we're going to get the details of the falling. It only told us that it was fallen, but it didn't give us any details. And in the next chapters, we're going to get some of the details. 15.1, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with seven last plagues. Last because with them, God's wrath is complete. I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire. Standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, O Lord Almighty. Just and true are your ways. King of the ages, who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? 
For you alone are holy, and all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And I want you to note something here. We're talking about the judgment of God on the earth. And all through this study, I've been saying to you that God doesn't judge the righteous and the wicked alike. And so what we see here is the righteous are on one side of a great sea. There are those who have been victorious over the beast. They're on the side of the sea. Now, remember in chapter 12, I told you to keep a verse in mind. How many kept that verse in mind? Probably nobody. But anyway, so I'll read it again. Remember, the beast has been foiled in chapter 12 in its pursuit of Israel, and then he turns his anger on the others who have kept the commands of God. And it says this, So the dragon became enraged at the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring, those who keep the commands of God and hold to the testimony of Yeshua. And he stood on seashore. So we spoke about how it sounded, it sounds here like the people of God are in for some hard times because the beast was going to make war against those who love Yeshua. But again, I've been telling you that, you know, thing about revelation is the people of god really don't have anything to fear in this book and we read it in the very first chapter remember what it said how fortunate is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and those who hear and keep what has been written in it for the time is near that word fortunate there would be better translated blessed how blessed are the people who read the words of this book well if you were reading the words of this book and it read that the dragon was going to make war against them. I don't think that sounds like a blessing, do you? That doesn't sound very blessed to me. But notice that he goes to make war, and then it says he stood on the shore of the sea. And here we pick up with him standing by the sea, but we get a look at the other side of the sea, and what does it say? Standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. Sounds like somebody else has been victorious. Yeshua didn't leave those who love him hanging out to dry or fodder for the dragon. No, the dragon is standing by the sea, but he's in defeat, unable to reach the rest of the offspring. Those who keep the commands of God and hold to the testimony of Yeshua seem quite safe to me. This should, again, bring something else to mind. Remember, we said that the woman in chapter 12 was protected in a place prepared for her by God, and we spent a long time looking at that. Well, we find much the same thing here. Those who were with Yeshua had been victorious over the beast are on one side and the dragon on the other. And they're singing the song of Moses and the lamb. Let's read the song of Moses because it speaks of the victory of God over Egypt. Then Moses and the Israelites sang a song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his armies he has hurled into the sea. So again, remember the key to the book of Revelation, one of the keys is the Exodus. And Pharaoh is called the dragon in here. So he's defeated the shadow of what's going on in the book of revelation the best of pharaoh's officers are drowned in the sea the deep waters have covered them they sank to the depths like a stone your right hand O lord was majestic in power your right hand O lord shattered the enemy and in the greatness of your majesty you threw down those who opposed you you unleashed your burning anger it consumed them like stubble by the blast of your nostrils the waters piled up the surging waters stood 
firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. There's more, but I thought that was enough. And so this is the song of Moses. And do you see something? The people of God are not going to be going through the wrath that's coming shortly. We're going to read about on the wicked of the earth. Not only that, they are protected from the beast as well. And they will be kept by God just as the 144,000 are kept by God. And just like the rest of the Jewish people who are led into the wilderness are kept by God. We determined that was 7,200,000 somewhere in that area. And the beast is on one side and the righteous are on the other and they're in safety in God's hands. Now, folks, that ought to be a blessing to you. I mean, that sounds like a blessing to me anyway. Whatever you think about the rapture, whether you're pre-trib, post-trib, or mid-trib, whatever, God is going to take care of his people during the birth pangs of Messiah. And really, when we see this, it really makes all the arguments about those things a little ridiculous. So I want to read verse 5 and it says this. After this, I looked in heaven in the temple. That is, the tabernacle of the testimony was opened, and out of the temple came seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chest. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were complete. Okay, so this is where we're going to leave off for tonight because next we'll read about the wrath of God being poured out. And again, for those who would say, how could God judge the earth in such a way? Well, again, even at this time, as the wrath of God is going to be poured out, we see the compassion of God and his desire that it's not his desire to do this, but it's the choice the people of the earth have made. And we read in chapter 16, verse 10, after the fifth of these bowls have been poured out, it reads this way. Remember, they've heard the gospel proclaimed. The people nod their tongues in pain and curse the God of heaven because of their pains and their boils but they did not repent of their deeds. It's not God who causes the pain and the suffering. They've all heard the call of God. They've all heard the eternal gospel, but still they don't repent. To avoid the suffering that's going on, that's inflicted the people, all they had to do was turn to God and repent, and they would be on the other side of the sea with the righteous. And next week we'll look at the pouring out of the bowls of God's wrath in chapter 16. And we'll speak about Babylon and her destruction in chapters 17 and 18. And after that, you know, in a few weeks, we'll be uh, talking about the kingdom that's coming and so forth. 